Before I start my sermon tonight, let me say I got home today and realized that I'd forgotten this morning in the morning service that it was Mother's Day. I had not forgotten when I got home and in all the excitement of having people back, I didn't have the occasion to say Happy Mother's Day to all of our wonderful moms and our spiritual moms, how we are blessed by you. May you feel that love today. Well, open your Bibles, if you will, to Second Chronicles chapter 5. We'll study today verses 2 to the end of chapter 14, uh, verse 14. Second Chronicles chapter 5, verses 2 to 14. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled before the king at the feast that is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the Ark. And they brought up the Ark, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The Levitical priests brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim sprung out, spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim made a covering above the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. Now, there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves without regard to their divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Haman, and Jeduthun, their sons and kinsmen, arrayed in in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised, with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The house house of the Lord was filled with a cloud, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. The grass withers and the flowers fall and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the remembrance of this great event so significant to us as it is fulfilled in your Son and through your Spirit. Bless us now as we study your word. Would you cause us to see your glory and to see it in the face of your Son? We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Imagine if you could be present for any single day in the history of the Old Testament. What day would it be? Among the events that come to mind are that day when God made his covenant with Abraham, the firebrand passing alone between the severed animal parts, Genesis 15, 17. Or maybe you'd like to be there the day the Red Sea waters parted and Israel passed through on dry land, Exodus 14, 21 to 22. 
Or perhaps what's exciting to you is when Joshua blew the trumpets and the walls of Jericho fell down, Joshua 7.20, or when young David stepped forward and slew the giant Goliath with a stone, 1 Samuel 17.49. Another day that deserves to be in this category is the one covered in our text, the day when Solomon brought up the Ark of the Covenant from Jerusalem to rest in the temple. Imagine the scene. There is Solomon, Israel's most glorious king, and he's arrayed in splendor. He's surrounded by the elders and the chiefs of Israel in all of their ceremonial garb. And the Levites then bring up the ark, while sheep and oxen beyond number are sacrificed. As they approach the newly minted temple, the entire cohort of Israel's priests emerge from inside that they might receive the sacred ark. And then as the golden cherubim-shadowed box disappeared inside, the Levitical singers broke forth in a song as the trumpets sounded. And every voice on Mount Zion sang forth, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. But it was after that that something really amazing happened. For the cloud of God's glory, what the Jews would call the Shekinah glory of God, The glory cloud filled the temple with radiance, showing his actual presence, the actual presence of the true and living God. And the priest staggered out of the temple, unable to stand inside with such blinding light. Well, well, Solomon's bringing up of the Ark of the Covenant to the temple sees a transition in God's redemptive history. It marks the true end of the Exodus era. Many hundreds of years after the the journey itself brought them to the promised land. But you see, now is the final settlement of Israel in the promised land as the ark finds a permanent rest. And more than this, 2 Chronicles 5 shows the reality of saving religion. And God's people acted in obedience with his word. They, They worshiped him with hearts filled with delight in his grace. And when they did, the power and the glory of the Lord was revealed in their midst. The glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Verse 14. Well, this account in chapter 5 of of 2 Chronicles tells of the bringing up of the ark from the city of David to the Temple Mount. It was not a great distance as they did so, but it was very significant, and it takes place in three phases. Verses 2 to 6 relate the movement of the ark from the city of David up to the temple site. Verses 7 to 10 uh, see the ark being installed in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And then verses 11 to 14 tell of the people's praise and God responding to that praise with a confirming display of his glory. Now it's evident that Solomon had prepared for this grand event and we can prepare to understand it by rehearsing some of the history of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was a box made of acacia wood and overlaid with pure gold. It was made by Bezalel, that spirit-anointed craftsman in the time of Moses. Exodus 37 tells us that. And then during the Exodus, the ark would lead the people. It would go ahead of the tribes as they marched through the Exodus. And they were carrying inside the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. For this reason, it was called the Ark of the Covenant. It was the depository of the covenant documents. 
that governed the relationship between Israel and its Lord. And for 40 years, Israel followed the ark. And when it camped, it was placed in their center in the tent of meeting, the the tabernacle. The time came when Joshua led the tribes into the land of Canaan and the ark went first into the Jordan. And when it did, the Jordan River waters parted, just like the Red Sea a generation earlier, Joshua 3, 14 to 17. But some years later, when the sons of the high priest Eli had desecrated the tabernacle with debauchery, God punished them by delivering the ark into the hands of their enemies. 1 Samuel 4.11, prompting the cry of Ichabod, meaning the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. The Philistines, however, were not able to keep the ark. If you know the story, they actually made it a trophy in the temple of Dagon. That did not go very well at all. And Dagon was smashed by the true God of the, of the ark. And, and God's curse came upon the people. And wherever it went in, in, among the Philistines, people were dying. And, and so as soon as they could, they actually sent it back to Israel. What shall we do with this holy God? The Philistines said, and And they brought it back and so many people had been slain as the ark was mishandled during this episode that for a whole generation it was housed on the borders of Israel in the house of a man named Abinadab who was actually a Gibeonite. Well finally when David had entered into his kingdom he sent for the ark and he brought it up with great ceremony to the new capital city of Jerusalem. That's how it got to Jerusalem for Solomon. But David did not consult God's word for the proper handling of the ark. And one of his attendants reached out when the cart hit a bump and he put his hand on the ark of the Lord and he was slain. David was so filled with fear, he set it beside the road and in time he repented. He went and consulted God's word and he brought the ark up in the way that God had prescribed. Now from that time until Solomon's temple was built, roughly 40 years, the ark rested in the city of David in a tent that David had constructed for it there. Well, now the ark would come to its place of permanent rest in the temple made by Solomon. It would symbolize that God's promises to Moses and the Exodus nation, they had all been fulfilled. They were in that place that God had appointed his name to be worshipped his own ark would rest. Now for the occasion of this event, we read that Solomon assembled, verse 2, all the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the father's house, houses of the people of Israel in Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. Now it was appropriate for all the people to witness the entry of God's ark in the temple, but the whole nation could not fit there. And so their representatives were there, the elders and the tribe and clan leaders of the people. And when the chronicler notes that this event took place at the feast that is in the seventh month, he is almost certainly referring to the Feast of Tabernacles. Interestingly, 1 Kings 6.38 says that Solomon completed the work on the temple in the eighth month. But we read here that the Ark of the Covenant went up in the seventh month. Now, one of two things happened. Solomon may have spent 11 months preparing for this entry. That seems unlikely that the temple would be finished all that time and the ark would be sitting there waiting to go up. What's more likely is they actually brought the ark up before the temple was finished, that the final touches were being given to it. Now, why would they do that? Because of the symbolism of the Feast of Tabernacles. 
and how important that would be to understanding what is being done here. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was one of the three main feasts of Israel, and it thanked God for providing the annual harvest, but primarily it symbolized the Exodus journey of the people of Israel on their way to the Promised Land. And and during the week of this feast, the people would actually leave their homes, and they would leave in booths made of sheaves. That's why the feast was also called the Feast of Booths. And it reminded the people of their dependence on the Lord and his faithful to them in all their journeys, seeking a home. And so as the Ark of the Covenant comes to a permanent place of rest, it sealed the blessing they had received as a pilgrim people who had looked to God in faith. Now the description of how Solomon brought up the Ark shows, again, we've seen this all through the temple building project, Much to his credit, it shows his great care in observing God's instructions. When the elders of Israel were watching, the Levites took up the ark, just as God commanded. The Levites were to be the ones who carried it. And they were to cover the ark without looking upon it. There was actually a prescribed procedure in Numbers 4, how to cover the ark without looking upon it. And they would carry, put poles through its sockets, and they would carry it on poles. That's what Solomon did. You see, he'd learned from, Saul, from David's prior experience how important it was to move the ark properly. We are to learn from this example that all of our worship must be in accordance with God's word. Notice as well that Solomon had ordered Israel's leadership entirely in accordance with God's word. The properly appointed men served as elders and clan chiefs and, and, and household leaders. And the Levites carried the ark and the other sacred vessels. And then when it got to the temple, the priests took over. Why? Because it's the order God had given. And they were the ones who brought it into the temple, into the Holy of Holies. Well, likewise, New Testament churches are to be led by qualified pastors, elders, and deacons. There is an order for the church organization, for the offices, the functions that those offices will fulfill, the biblically appointed tasks. Notice further that all of Solomon's leaders were biblically qualified men. Just as the New Testament restricts the ordained officers of the church to spiritually qualified men. You'll see this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 to chapter 3, 13. God has appointed men to serve his covenant heads in the church and in the home, and they're to be responsible to lead worship. Philip Ryken comments, as a man listens to the voice of God speaking in scripture and talks to God in prayer, he sets his heart toward eternity, and by the grace of God, his children will follow. Well, the final feature for us to note about the movement of the ark up to the temple was the great abundance of sacrifices that were offered, presumably as it would move. This is what happened when David brought it up. It would move a few feet and the sacrifices would be offered. It would move a few more feet and more sacrifices would be offered. Look at verse 6. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were before the ark sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Now the offerings of the Feast of Tabernacles were thank offerings in response to God's faithfulness for the harvest. 
And yet since here Solomon is offering not grain offerings, he's not waving sheaves before the Lord, he's sacrificing oxen and sheep, he's doing so in the presence of the ark. These are probably at least as well sacrifices of atonement. Martin Selman writes that to sacrifice was an appropriate act of devotion to God for all that the ark represented. Now the chronicler highlights the extravagance of Solomon that befitted the situation. There were so many animals offered, he said, they could not be counted or numbered, verse 6. Now we're reminded that our response to the far greater gift from God in his son, Jesus Christ, what is the sacrifice the New Testament tells us to give? It is to give the whole of ourselves. Paul writes in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Romans 12, verse 1. Now, Christians no longer present atoning sacrifices because Christ has died once for all for our sins. And so we now sacrifice by turning from our sins and by offering our lives in service to God. And and in some cases, a Christian sacrifice might even involve surrendering our lives in fidelity to our Savior. During the Chinese Boxer Rebellion, around the years 1899 and 1900, a terror campaign was waged against Christian missionaries. And on one occasion, a mission school was surrounded, leaving only one exit. And in the dirt outside the door, a cross was placed on the ground. And the students were told if anyone would walk out and trample the cross, they could go free. But one by one, the first seven students came out. They ground their feet on the cross and they went safely away. But the eighth student, who was a young girl, she came up to the cross. She knelt down, prayed, and then carefully walked around it. Immediately, she was gunned down. But after her came the remaining 92 students in that Christian school. And emboldened by her sacrifice, her loyalty to Christ in faith, each of them refused to renounce their faith in Jesus. All of them died. Well, Solomon's sacrifices gave honor to God for his faithfulness in bringing Israel to a settled rest in the promised land. Every loyal sacrifice that we make to God's praise, it will be the death to sin. Yes, it might be the death of our lives. That happens. But we will prove his faithfulness and our loyalty to him. We will give him thanks for the priceless gift of his son. Well, the second phase in bringing up the ark commenced as the priest brought it inside the temple. Verse 7, then the priest brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. Now, this description of the ark inside the temple was designed to highlight the absolute holiness of God. This is all showing is the holiness of God as a symbol of God's presence. The ark was placed in that cubic shaped room furthest inside the temple, the holy of holies. It represented God's perfect holy throne room and it's all of its perfection in heaven. And the name of the room was rather suggestion. The most holy place. It's teaching God's holiness. 
So also did the overshadowing wings of the great golden cherubim that Solomon had made. And these objects symbolized the holy angels that worship and serve in the heavenly presence of God. 1 Samuel 4.4 describes the ark as the footstool of God's throne where he is enthroned upon the cherubim. Well, these unfallen heavenly beings worship constantly in the presence of God's holiness. And in Genesis 3.24, they were set as guardians against the entrance of sin. Now, furthermore, we're told that the poles by which the ark was carried, verse 9, were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary. Now, that probably means that the poles were actually pressing up against the thick curtain and veil that hid the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark, therefore, could not be seen, but it was obvious it was there. The impression of the poles was sticking uh, out against the curtains. Well, the very fact of the veil indicates the holiness of God. You see, even the priests of Israel, even when they were ceremonially cleansed in the, in the great bath outside, even when they were dressed in their turban and headdress, all that ritually holy garb, they, they still could not enter into the most holy place. Why? Because of the holy, holy, holiness of the God who was there. And so the golden ark exuded the presence of a sublime holiness that was not acceptable to sinners. As God said to Moses, because of his holiness, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Now, by the way, there's an interesting comment in verse 9. He says, and they are there to this day. That almost certainly is a, a, a product of the original source from which he's citing. It could also be a proverbial saying. We know that when the chronicler wrote this book, the Ark of the Covenant was no longer there, but it shows the source that he's using. The original source of this was pointing out that it was still there, a symbol of God's holiness. Now, as if the symbolism of the Ark, its placement in the Holy of Holies, the curtain that separated it even from the priest, if that all was not enough, the chronicler goes further by telling us what was inside the Ark. Verse 10, there was nothing in the Ark except the two tablets that Moses put there at Horeb. Now, Horeb is Sinai. The two tablets are the copies of the Ten Commandments. And so this means if anyone was to come into the Holy Holies and they would gaze and they would see the Holy Cherubim, the guardians against all sinners, but then they would look into the box and they would be face to face with the law of God that condemned them for all their sin. Now the chronicler adds that the ark bore testimony, this is verse 10, to where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Now there at Horeb, Mount Sinai, the Lord not only commanded his holy law, but he also, this is the point he's making, God also committed himself that he would be the God of this people. What are the words that precede the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Exodus 20, verse 2. And so the Ark of the Covenant, this golden object, it bore testimony, yes, to the absolute holiness of God but also to God's commitment to Israel that he would save them 
By the way, that was an encouraging point for the chronicler's own generation. They were in the Babylonian exile. They were thinking about coming back and to rebuild the temple, reminded that God had also committed himself as Savior and Lord to this people. The ark showed God dwelling with his people, though he was holy and they were not. Well, the way that God reconciled this tension exhibited by the Ark of the Covenant, a tension between holiness and grace, was revealed on the one day of the year when a person, just one person, Israel's high priest, was allowed to pass into this room and to stand before the Ark of the Covenant. It was called the Day of Atonement. And the high priest went in with 12 stones on each stone, the name of a tribe of Israel. He was representing the whole nation as he came before God. And and there there would be the cherubim. There would be the golden box. There would be the Ten Commandments, which they had so thoroughly broken. Ah, but you see, the priest came with the the blood that God had provided for him, the blood of the sacrifice, and he would sprinkle that atoning blood on the lid of the ark. It was called the mercy seat. And so now God would look down and he would see not the broken law, but the sprinkled blood. And in this way, the ark was a, a theological symbol of the logic of the gospel. It pointed Israel forward to a promised Savior who would come. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us that it was evident because this had to be done over and over, that the animal blood that was offered was merely symbolic. It wasn't itself efficacious. It was testifying there must be a true Lamb of God who would come. And the Apostle John names him as our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 2, 1 to 2. Now the word for propitiation corresponds to the Hebrew word for mercy seat, the place where the atoning blood was sprinkled. John 1.14 seals this connection between the Ark of the Covenant and the coming of Jesus as our Savior. It says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek word for dwelt was tabernacled. The hymn writer William Cooper, therefore, rightly pointed out that it is in the person and work of Jesus Christ that the holiness of God meets with his mercy to enable us to meet with God for worship. He said, Jesus, where'er your people meet, there they behold your mercy seat. Wherever they seek you, you are found and every place is hallowed ground. Well, the bringing up of the Ark of the Covenant to the temple signaled a great advance in God's redemptive work. It replaced the previous tent of meeting. Verse 5 makes the interesting almost side comment that they also took the the, the tabernacle with them. Oh, they just carried the tabernacle. This was, of course, the previous holy dwelling of the presence of God. But its time had been over now. It now was giving way to the the, the more permanent temple, and it was being carried up with ceremony and stored inside the temple. God was settling his nation in the promised land. Well, the coming of Jesus would advance God's saving purpose even further so that when the temple itself was finally torn down, God's people would worship in Jesus. Remember how Jesus compared himself to the temple. Tear down this temple and I will raise it up in three days. He was speaking of his resurrection life. That God's people would worship him and he would be present wherever there is faith in Jesus Christ. 
Through faith in his blood, we have the remedy for the wrath of God's holiness against our sin. We receive the blessing God had designed all along. This was his covenant. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Exodus 6, verse 7. Well, the final act of the ark's entry into the temple was actually the most dramatic. Oh, that was pretty dramatic. But when the ark had gone in, we read that the priest came out of the holy place, verse 11. Not just the priest on assignment that day, but all of the, of the priests, the whole cohort of the priesthood of Israel properly arrayed. And they were joined by all the Levitical singers. And they were all arrayed in fine linen, verse 12. And the Levites carried cymbals, harps, and lyres. And and they stood between the bronze altar and the temple along with the 120 priests who were trumpeters, verse 12. What a sight of gathered worship. What a sight. There was the host of Israel's priests and Levites dressed in their finery and their hearts filled with devotion, offering praise to the Lord. It's evident that they had, of course, practiced for this event. Verse 13 says, they practiced to make themselves heard in unison and praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. This was not impromptu. This was something that had involved preparation just as our worship should. Well, when all was ready, the great song of praise was lifted up on the temple mount of, Israel, of Jerusalem, from the hearts of Israel's consecrated priests, all of them having washed in the bronze sea, all of them arrayed in the garb of their holy office. And the song that they offered is a hymn for the ages with words that are, that are repeated throughout the book of Psalms. Verse 13 gives them, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Of all the attributes of God revealed by the coming of the ark into the temple, chief among them were his goodness and his love. Yes, the ark itself, its place in the temple, the the law inside it, the, the veil, it shows that God is holy, but he also, we see, is a God of goodness and steadfast love. That's what we see in this worship. It was God's faithful, loving care that brought the Israelites to this land. That's what provided his presence in their midst. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Martin Selman writes, God's faithful love had ensured the project's success. Underlying the temple was the person of God. He is good. Leslie Allen adds, God's steadfast love is a love that makes the future bright with hope. A new era was dawning for God's people and its keynote was to be his steadfast love for David. We'll see that in the next chapter, that expression being used. A love that met his people's repentance with forgiveness and blessing. Chapter 7, verse 14. Well, Christians have an even greater reason to extol and praise God for his goodness and covenant love. Now that Jesus has come to dwell in our midst, to tabernacle among us. Ephesians 3.18 says that we are now given the Holy Spirit so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. And so the coming of Jesus to dwell in us is a greater event than the Ark of the Covenant's entry into the temple. It results not only in the ritual cleansing of the priests, but what Ezekiel foretold on God's behalf, I will give you a new heart, not just a new set of clothing, 
a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. Oh, what a gift it is to have the Holy Spirit inside, the new birth and a new desire to know and serve the living God. It is with hearts renewed by God's spirit that we now sing our praises, giving even greater meaning to this hymn, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. I think it would be a wonderful sight to see the entire retinue of Israel's priests dressed in that that mysterious garb signifying holiness. There's all the Levites and the singers and the musicians, but, but it was then that something far greater happened. Verse 13, when the song was raised, the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud now, here was the glory cloud of God, which earlier had flooded the, tem- the tabernacle on the day when Moses had consecrated it, when the, tab- when the ark first went into the tabernacle. The same thing happened. The, the Shekinah glory fell upon the tabernacle. Exodus forty thirty four, And by this visible manifestation of his presence, the Lord was showing his acceptance of what Solomon had done and his acceptance of the worship of the priests. The cloud revealed God's glory in a way that emphasized his mystery and majesty. You're saying, what is it about a glory cloud? It's mystery, majesty, and glory. And it was a visible sign of God's delight. What a a blessing this is to us. What that symbolizes is the delight that God has today when we worship him in spirit and in truth. It was God's response to the worship. Matthew Henry notes that God's cloud appeared when they were in their praises celebrating the everlasting mercy and goodness of God. Leslie Allen comments, worship was followed by God's revelation of his glory. We know something about that. It takes place in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Well, the appearing of God's glory cloud, I said mirrors what happened earlier, 400 years earlier, when Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, Exodus forty thirty four, And likewise here, verse 14, the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Now in this way we're reminded that the temple was intended for God's grace to fill his people. And when the Lord appears to save, the the human element of ministry falls aside and God alone reveals his glorious power. And the purpose of worship is shown to be the display of God's glory alone. You see, unless the glory of the Lord is revealed, our churches are empty shells. They might as well be. Our activities amount to nothing unless the glory of the Lord is seen. How is it seen today? In his word, as the Holy Spirit attends to it. In our prayers, in the power of the Spirit. All of our worship, our worship buildings are but empty shells with no spiritual significance unless they are centered on God and his glory is revealed. Unless God's glory is seen by his power, in the preaching and the ministry of the gospel, there can be no salvation. But then when God appears in the mysterious glory of his grace, well then even the most simple acts of faithfulness 
in worship, in preaching, in acts of loving mercy, well, they are filled with divine power to save and to transform our lives. Matthew Henry comments, the cloud of glory that filled the house beautified it more than all the gold with which it was overlaid and all the precious stones with which it was garnished. That's what our worship should be beautified today by. Above all else, the presence of God in the Holy Spirit through the faithful preaching of his word, the faith of the people, and by our Christ-centered prayers. Well, knowing today that the glory of God is seen, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, the glory of God today is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Our worship in Christ's name should be accompanied by a prayer like that of Cooper's hymn. Cooper wrote, Lord, we are few, but you are near nor short your arm, nor deaf your ear. Oh, rend the heavens, come quickly down and make a thousand hearts your own. Well, I have said that the coming of the, the carrying of the old tent of meeting and the transfer of the Ark of the Covenant to the temple marked the era of the Exodus era, the end of the Exodus era. This is the final end of what began with the Exodus And yet Israel's exodus under Moses, brought to consummation under Solomon, was actually symbolic of a greater exodus in which God's glory would be revealed even more brightly. And we see this in the ministry of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when the disciples were there and suddenly his glory shone out from his own holy divine being. Luke's gospel says, Luke 9.29, and as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And the disciples saw those great Old Testament figures, Moses and Elijah, and they were talking with Jesus. Luke says in Luke 9.31, they were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now the word that Luke used for his departure was in the Greek exodon, a grammatical form of the word exodus. They were speaking of Jesus' exodus that would occur when he took up the cross. It's comparing Jesus' death on the cross to the exodus of Israel when they were freed from the bondage they had experienced. Israel was delivered from the bondage of slavery by the Passover blood. Our true deliverance from the bondage of sin was gained by the blood of Jesus. And just as the tent of meeting at one time was, the day came, it's recorded in our chapter, When the tent of meeting was folded up, it was carried into the temple in the time of Solomon. So also, after Jesus' exodus, his coming, the temple was torn down to make way for the true temple that would be his worldwide church. Ephesians 2, 19-22. And so we no longer live in the era of Solomon's temple focused on ritual, holy rituals and sacred articles. We are living in the era of Christ, the era of the gospel, by the grace of his spirit. And yet, like Solomon, we live in careful obedience to Christ's word. We offer the sacrifice of our lives. We give praise from our hearts to the God who is good and whose steadfast love has endured until our time, and it will continue until the very end. It will never end. Well, the gospel era in which we live, like Solomon's, will someday come to an end. And when it does, we too will see the glory cloud of the Lord. 
Jesus said in Luke 21, 27, that when he comes, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And Jesus prayed to the Father on our behalf on the night of his arrest that we may see his glory. May they see my glory that you have given to me, John 17, 24. And my friends, when that day comes, we will not be thinking of which Old Testament events we would like to see. We will not be asking the question, what would be your favorite day from the Old Testament? Which day would you like to have witnessed face to face? No, we will be there. Our future holds that we will be present for what will be the greatest of all days, the greatest of all events and of all times. And then we will enter the heavenly sanctuary. Revelation 5.18 says it is filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And in that eternal city, the new Jerusalem, there will be no temple, we read, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Revelation twenty-one twenty-two. And there we will sing a song that will never end. And I have not the slightest doubt that among its great lines will be the words of praise to God, that reveal the reason we have received so great a salvation. It's the words they sang in Solomon's time as the Ark of the Covenant went into the temple. Surely we will sing, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for what is not merely a history lesson. This is our story. It's the story of Christ And it's the story of you, a God, a holy God of grace who reveals your glory. Oh, Father, send forth the Spirit in our time that your glory may be revealed in faith through the power of your word and the answers to prayer. And yet help each of us, Lord, to realize that we have something to look forward to, that the great tabernacles event is going to come when the journey of all history will come to its end and you will be found faithful. We will enter into your glory above we will see the glory of our lord jesus christ and lord we will sing that you are good oh you've been covenantally faithful your steadfast love will endure forever and ever and ever we pray this in christ's name amen